Welcome to Hanchuk Targets History. I'm your host, Tim Hanchuk. Thanks for joining me this episode. You know, I've been teaching high school history for way too many years, and I love talking about this stuff. So let me share with you some interesting, unique, and little-known historical events. I know you'll be entertained, and if you're not careful, you just might learn something too. So, let's lock and load and take a shot at that target of history and see what we can hit. Let's head down range and see what the target shows us. Hey, looks like today we'll be talking about an 1859 murder committed in broad daylight in front of a number of witnesses a short distance from the White House by a member of Congress. And to top it off, the murderer will use a temporary insanity defense at his trial. I know, I know, you saw the title of this episode and many of you probably thought, hey, insanity? That could apply to any member of Congress. But all joking aside, in this instance, we're talking about first-term Congressman Daniel Edgar Sickles, a Democrat from New York. Sickles was born October 20th, 1819 in New York. His father was a lawyer and politician, so the family lived comfortably, and Daniel was afforded many opportunities that most young men of the era did not have. He attended the University of the City of New York, which would later on become NYU, and studied law. During his schooling, he proved himself to be quite popular possessing supreme self-confidence, charisma, and charm. He also displayed a bit of a rebellious streak when it came to proper modes of behavior. I guess in more modern terms, we might describe him as cool or edgy. He was elected to a seat in the New York State Assembly in 1847. Five years later, in September of 1852, Sickles got married. He was 32 at the time. His new bride, an extremely beautiful young woman named Teresa Baggioli, was 16. Neither of their families approved of the marriage, but Sickles was not the kind of guy to be turned away from what he wanted. The couple soon had a daughter, their only child, and seemed to lead a happy life. Sickles was a go-getter, constantly looking to better his career, and he began rising through the ranks. He served as corporation counsel for New York City for a time before U.S. President Franklin Pierce appointed him to the United States Legation in London under James Buchanan. When he returned to the States in 1855, he decided again to pursue a career in politics. The following year, he won a seat in the New York Senate. He served a bit less than a year before being elected to the U.S. House of Representatives. Yeah, by 1858, everything seemed to be rolling along for Sickles. He had a beautiful and charming young wife. The couple's daughter by then was an adorable six-year-old, and although he was just a freshman congressman, he was already seen as an up-and-comer with limitless potential. But unfortunately, not all was as well as it seemed. Enter Philip Barton Key II. Barton, as he was commonly called, was the district attorney for Washington, D.C., and the son of Francis Scott Key. Yeah, I think he wrote a song about a star-spangled flag or banner or something. <laughs> anyway, Key was handsome, charismatic, arrogant, and egocentric. In essence, he was very similar in personality to Sickles. Perhaps that's why the two hit it off so well, 
when they met in March of 1857 over an all-night game of whist. By the way, whist is a pretty fun card game to play. You should look up the rules sometime. Soon afterwards, Key was introduced to Teresa. She quickly became enamored of him, attracted to his good looks and roguish charm. Key, being quite the womanizer, found her equally attractive. Uh-oh, can you guess where this is going? Sickles was often away from Washington for extended periods on political business, and Key took to frequently calling upon Teresa. Soon, the pair became almost inseparable, and frequently attended balls, parties, plays, and other social gatherings. It was only a matter of time before they became lovers. Now, Daniel Sickles knew nothing of his wife's affair, but the rest of Washington High Society sure did. Teresa Sickles and Barton Key were the talk of the town. When seen in public together, which, as I said, was quite often, they were quite playful and sometimes even affectionate, and they displayed that casual comfort with each other that only those who are intimate together have. Key even went so far as to rent a house on 15th Street, very near the Sickles' home, as a place for their frequent bedroom gymnastics. When Sickles was home, things between he and his wife seemed normal. The couple would host dinner parties and receptions in their elegant home on the west side of Lafayette Square, which became a popular gathering place for Washington's younger socialites. Unfortunately, the happy times were about to come to an end. On the evening of Thursday, February 24, 1859, the Sickleses hosted a dinner party. After dinner, most of the guests set out to the nearby Willard Hotel to go dancing. Teresa went with them, and Daniel was about to follow when a messenger arrived with a letter for him. Since he was eager to catch up with the party, he put the letter, unopened, in his pocket and promptly forgot about it. The couple got home in the small hours of Friday morning. Teresa promptly went to bed, but Daniel, the driven politician that he was, thought he might catch up on some correspondence. That reminded him of the letter in his pocket, which he then read. Let me share part of the letter with you. It read, Dear Sir, with a deep regret I enclosed your address the few lines, an indispensable duty compels me so to do, seeing that you are greatly imposed upon. There is a fellow by the name of Philip Barton Key, who rents a house situated on 15th Street between K and L Streets, for no other purpose than to meet with your wife, Mrs. Sickles. He hangs a string out of the window as a signal to her that he is in, and leaves the door unfastened, and she walks in. And, sir, I do assure you with these few hints. I leave the rest for you to imagine. Most respectfully, your friend, R.P.G. Ouch, what a letter to get. Sickles had no idea who R.P.G. was. And, by the way, his identity has never been discovered. But, anyway, since he didn't know an R.P.G., his first inclination was to dismiss the note as perhaps an enemy's political attack meant to upset his household or something. But as he thought more about it, the note seemed to become more and more believable. It gave details like the specific house, the string signal, and the fact that the door was left unlocked. Sickles realized he couldn't ignore the note, 
so he decided that he would start investigating these allegations come Friday morning. That Friday, Sickles had his friend George Wooldridge go check on the house on 15th Street and ask around among the neighbors to see if they had seen anything. Wooldridge talked to some neighbors who, it turns out, had seen quite a lot and were more than willing to talk about it. The neighbors confirmed that a man and woman matching Keyes and Teresa's descriptions had been seen frequently entering the house. As a matter of fact, this mysterious couple had become kind of the talk of the street, since it was so obvious what they must be doing. Wooldridge also asked the day and time of the most recent appearance of this couple. Armed with this information, Wooldridge reported back to Sickles later that Friday. The neighbors he had talked to had told him that the most recent visit to the house was made on Thursday. This greatly relieved Sickles because he could account for Teresa's movements for all of Thursday. So maybe his wife wasn't involved in any kind of assignation. Wooldridge promised he'd keep investigating though. On Saturday, Wooldridge talked to some more neighbors. They also said the couple matched the descriptions he gave them and stressed that Wednesday, not Thursday, was the last time the couple was seen entering the house. When Wooldridge presented this new information to Sickles, he was devastated. He could not account for Teresa's whereabouts on Wednesday and thus drew the only reasonable conclusion he could think of, that his wife was having an affair with a man he saw as his friend. That evening, Sickles confronted Teresa. She was taken by surprise and, of course, denied everything. But as Sickles laid out all the information he knew, she realized she was caught and confessed everything. He even made her write out a confession for her adultery. In it, she said that she and Key had engaged in intimacy of an improper kind, and then went on to say, I did what is usual for a wicked woman to do. Meanwhile, Barton Key was looking for another meetup with Teresa and was puzzled why he hadn't heard from her. On Saturday, he took a room at the Cosmos Club, which was across Lafayette Park from the Sickles' home. He spent a good part of the day using his opera glasses to scan the home, looking for a signal from Teresa that she wanted to meet. No signal came. On Sunday, February 27th, Key was out of patience. That morning, he walked out of the club and paced back and forth in front of the Sickles' house, waving a handkerchief, a signal that he was looking to see her. She, prostrate with guilt and grief at being caught, never saw him. While Key was prancing about outside, Sickles was inside, meeting with a political supporter named Samuel Butterworth. Butterworth had been in town visiting a senator, and Sickles called on him to come over to tell him about Teresa's affair and ask for suggestions on how to handle Key. He even showed him Teresa's signed confession letter. Needless to say, Butterworth was rather taken aback and said he needed to think a bit. He left the house for a few minutes and went to a nearby bar for a quick drink. When he returned, he ran into Woldridge, who had just arrived. The two men briefly discussed the situation, when suddenly Sickles heatedly entered the room, saying Key could be seen outside, making obvious signs. The two men tried to calm Sickles, 
and Butterworth, who knew Keith, said he'd go outside and talk to him and try to find out if he had indeed rented a room at the Cosmos Club. Outside, Key was still walking in front of the house waving his handkerchief. He soon saw Butterworth approaching and the two men made some small talk. Butterworth was able to ascertain that Key had in fact taken a room at the club and after a bit more small talk he turned to leave with this information. While this conversation was happening, Sickles grabbed two single-shot Derringers and a revolver and rushed outside. As Butterworth was starting to walk away from Key, Sickles rushed up to him. Key, seeing Sickles, held out his hand for a shake and even said, How are you? Sickles replied by shouting that Key was a scoundrel who had dishonored his house and had to die. He drew his pistol and fired at Key, but the shot went wide. Key, realizing the danger he was in, grabbed Sickles' coat and tried to get him in a clinch. Sickles broke free and fired again, hitting Key. Key staggered back, screaming that he was being murdered. Sickles advanced and fired again at close range, hitting Key again. Key grabbed his groin and collapsed to the ground. Youch! You can guess where that shot hit. Sickles fired again at the prone figure and again hit him. Sickles now stood over the bleeding man and put the gun right to his head for the coup de grace. But when he pulled the trigger, nothing happened. The gun had misfired. Now understand, this is broad daylight in the center of Washington, D.C. There were all kinds of bystanders watching. When Sickles' gun misfired, several decided to intervene. One guy asked Sickles to give him the gun, or at least not try shooting it again. Another group lifted the now unconscious and dying key and carried him off to the nearest doctor. Sickles yelled to the group, Is the damn scoundrel dead? No one answered him, but it was pretty obvious that if he wasn't dead already, he soon would be. With the deed done, Sickles was sort of at a loss for what to do next. Butterworth, who had jumped out of the way when the shooting started, now came back to him. They talked about what Sickles should do and quickly decided he should surrender himself to the police. They made their way to the nearby home of the U.S. Attorney General, Jeremiah Black, and waited there for the police to arrive. As he was being taken down to the station, the police did allow Sickles to stop in at his house to tell Teresa what he did. Can you imagine that conversation? Like, hey babe, I just killed your lover in the park. You know, okay, see ya. Now Sickles was in a world of trouble. He had just committed cold-blooded murder in front of a host of witnesses. Probably best to plea bargain to avoid the death penalty. But Sickles wasn't about to make any deals. He was going to fight. He assembled a high-powered defense team of lawyers from New York, along with Edwin M. Stanton, a well-connected D.C. lawyer, who, by the way, would later serve as Secretary of War for Abraham Lincoln. The lead prosecutor was Robert Old. Remember, he had been a district attorney for D.C., and Old was his main assistant. So for him, this case was quite personal. Fearful of Sickles' high-powered defense team, Key's relatives also hired James Carlyle to assist Old. So what was the defense strategy for Sickles' team? Well, it was a two-pronged defense. They wanted to portray him as a wronged man 
acting with justification. And they would also argue that he was temporarily insane. Now, insanity had long been used as a defense, but this was the first time that the idea of someone being only temporarily mad had been raised. The trial took place, and many people have called it a fiasco. The defense used the old strategy of putting the victim on trial rather than the defendant. The deceased Key's character was dragged through the mud as he was portrayed as an evil seducer. Sickles was portrayed as the wronged husband and father who desired nothing more but justice for his fractured family. The defense also did a tremendous job of convincing the jury that Sickles suffered from temporary insanity claiming he was in a state of white-hot heat, too great a state of passion for a man to be in, seeing the hardened, unrelenting seducer of his wife. The jury deliberated a little over an hour before returning a not-guilty verdict. This came as little surprise to anyone who had witnessed the trial. The courtroom actually erupted in wild cheering when the verdict was rendered, and Stanton, known to be rather straight-laced and proper, actually broke into a little dance right in the courtroom. That evening, Sickles held a massive party for all his well-wishers. Though he escaped justice, Sickles' political career did pay a price. He remained a member of Congress, but he withdrew from society and was seen as a person who should be shunned in social settings. In July of 1859, he did publicly announce that he and Teresa had reconciled, but this was purely to spin his political image. Behind closed doors, Teresa lived a very unhappy life until she died in 1867 at the age of 31 from tuberculosis. As for Sickles, or Devil Dan as he became known, he remained a hellraiser for the rest of his long life. He lost a leg at the Battle of Gettysburg, he seduced the deposed Queen of Spain, Isabella II, and returned to Congress in the 1890s before dying at the ripe old age of 94 in 1914. But talking about all those events, well, that would be another story. And there you have it, kind listeners. Thank you for tuning in. You know, if you like this episode, please tell your friends, and maybe check out some of the others. You might like them. And I look forward to talking with you again next time.